Hi, you're listening to a sermon from Oak Hills Church in Folsom, California. We're so glad you're listening. If you'd like more information, you can visit us online at oakhills.org or phone us at 916-983-0181. This morning is that we're going to be focusing on Mary and her role in this grand story of what God has been doing in the world. Um, And the reason why I'm excited to talk about in part is because of my wife, Stephanie, who grew up in the church, and she likes to reference that time in her life as being a church brat. That's how she labels herself. Um, And all throughout that time of being a church brat, she was always asked to be Mary for a number of years. She would come up on stage and plays or skits or whatever, and she would be Mary. She doesn't necessarily look back at that with 100% of amusement. And so there's a certain amount of ironic delight that I get to come up this morning uh, and talk about Mary. So this one's for Stephanie. Um, (laughs) But before uh, jumping into her story, into Mary's story, uh, I wanted to share a thought on this series that we're in, which is uh, on the screens is the way of the manger. And that's this. This story is weird. This story is really weird. God came to earth so uniquely. God, uh, Jesus coming down and incarnating into the world was the most pivotal, consequential, epic thing to ever take place. Most epic thing of all time. No less he was born to a poor woman in an obscure part of the Roman Empire, as the story Mike told earlier. On what was most likely just an average, boring night in a small village. And... The educated guess is that Bethlehem was, uh, population was about 300-ish people at that time. The other night, Stephanie and I were watching a movie, and the, the tension in the movie was building and building and building, and the main character it was looking worse and worse for that character. Something bad was going to happen. And Stephanie mentioned to me, she leaned over and said, oh, I don't know if I can take this. I don't know. I might, not, I might stop watching this. I don't know if I can do it. And I mentioned to her, oh, don't worry, Stephanie. The second act is almost over. Um, to which she just kind of lovingly rolls her eyes at me. Um, I'm a bit of a film nerd. You could call me a film snob if you like. Um, that's what I got my major in in college. So I can get downright obnoxious uh, when it comes to film. <laughs> Somebody just said, yeah, over there? Okay. Um, <laughs> most films follow this three-act format. In fact, most plays, most stories follow this three-act format. The first act is when the characters are introduced and established the setting is established um then usually a problem or a challenge that happens at the end of the first act and ushers us into the second act and that problem is for the hero or the main character or main characters and then the second act is when tension rises when action rises when more and more is at stake right and then we it leads to the most pivotal moment usually of the movie which takes place right after the right at the end of the second act going into the third act and this Third, this most pivotal moment is usually something that is very dramatic. It's the epic battle or where the hero comes through. And then the third act is usually where resolution takes place. Action goes down and we have our resolution. But most of the time when we think of the end of this second act, this most epic part of any story where the tension is the greatest, we usually think of something like this. Let's see this film clip here.
king stand on earth? Not a lot. Terrible place to end, right? <laughs> that is an epic, epic scene, right? One of the best of all time in film. We agree on that? Yes? Okay. Yeah. Okay. That's from The Two Towers, um, which is an awesome movie. If you haven't seen that, you should, I was going to say go rent it, but don't go to Blockbuster because they don't exist anymore. <laughs> so this is what we expect at the epic part of a movie, right? The most pivotal part of a movie. But in this story, in the story of what God has been doing, this grand narrative, since the beginning of time when God created this universe until now. This is the most pivotal moment that when Jesus is incarnated. The incarnation of him coming to us. Coming to save us and rescue us. This is what we get instead of this epic moment. And you can go ahead and put the picture of Bethlehem up. This, a small village on an average boring night. The most pivotal and consequential thing in the history of of the world takes place. There is no fanfare for Jesus, not much of it. We know there's some, right? But there's no Olympic-like opening ceremonies that go on for a couple of hours. There's no Simba moment, like in Lion King, where Rafiki holds up Simba and goes like this. I don't know, in Jesus' story, I guess it would be John the Baptist would be Rafiki uh, holding up Jesus, but John the Baptist is like pretty much the same age as Jesus, so it would be like a six-month-old holding up a baby, which is a really weird thought. But there's no moment like this. Um, you know, Seth and I spent years uh, leading um, groups of young people overseas on missions trips. And every time we got home, and this is part of my vanity I'm going to admit here, when we were coming down the escalator at Sacramento International Airport, um, I always had this secret hope that there would be this big group of people there to greet us, you know. Balloons, signs, you know, I don't know, circus hacks going on in the background kcr i can't talk kcra3 there to interview us and uh talk about how awesome we were on our mission trip but that never happened unfortunately oddly that never happened when we come down the stairs but that's what we expect right and very much what we see in jesus's story is not that also on top of this another layer to this is that we have become so familiar with this story of Jesus coming to earth and of Mary's story. In fact, we talk about it every year. So even if you don't come regularly to church, but you come at this time of the year, odds are you're very familiar with this story. I have a friend who I was talking to this week who was mentioning that there are times when he wishes that he had not grown up in the church, that he had not heard the story because, and I understand what he was saying, we, I can become jealous and he can become jealous of people who experience the amazing, qual- the amazing elements of this story, the weirdness of this story for the first time. Mark Laberton is the president of Fuller Seminary, and, and he wrote about this, uh, this experience he had when he uh, learned about Jesus and the gospel for the first time. He said, 
Out of intellectual curiosity, I began to read the Gospels the fall I entered college. I did so with a sense that the New Testament was an important cultural text, that I knew very little about it, and that, as one on the road to becoming better, better educated, I should at least read it. What shocked me was that Jesus was first and foremost a disruptor. His words and his actions clearly disturbed the social and religious norms of the day. And the people he attracted to him did not seem to fit the mainstream, but rather were outsiders for whom Jesus was an unexpected and surprising host, healer, and friend. This was not what I expected. Though I knew next to nothing about the Gospels, the narrative led me to think that Jesus was not playing games nor seeking some kind of religious domestication. Instead, what struck me as a first-time reader of the New Testament was that Jesus was waking people up from a social or religious slumber and calling them to something like a new kingdom. In other words, Jesus seemed to be the opposite of many Christians I had known. Ouch, our last part. But that's part of the danger we, we, we run in being so familiar with the story, or if, we've, if you're like me, growing up so much with this story is we've become familiar to it. We've become numb to it in some ways. And then we run the risk of thinking that we know the story, that we know what the truth of it is. And then we run the risk of figuring out who God is and thinking we have God figured out and that we know who God is. And then we look back at it and we also say, of course this is how it happened. Of course this is the plot. This is the circumstances. This is how the whole story laid out. And we forget the fact that it could have happened differently. There's any number of ways that God could have done this. But yet he chose this way, this peculiar, odd, and weird story. And it's because of the way this story comes about. It's the characteristics of the story that says everything about who God is. He didn't have Jesus come like Gandalf over the hill with a giant army behind him. And this says everything about how powerful God really is, about his character, about his uniqueness, and about his weirdness. And let me just say weirdness. Let me define that before um, anyone's insulted by that. Uh, By weird, I mean wonderful, unexpected, unconventional, unique, revolutionary. And I don't mean, you know, confusing and stupid or, you know, the negative way that people may use the word weird. That's not how I mean this. And what this way reveals, what this story reveals about the character of God is really, really good news for us. Okay, so on to Mary. Mary is a very, was a very unimportant at the time in her society. Average. Uh, She was low on the socioeconomic level. You could call her a peasant. She had no standing in society And she was very vulnerable. And let me explain what I mean by Mary being vulnerable. When Gabriel visited her and let her in on what was about to happen, that she was about to become pregnant, she was betrothed, which means she wasn't married. She was engaged. So, And they had not consummated their marriage, obviously not being married, so she was a virgin. This was the worst possible timing for Mary of her getting pregnant. In fact, it couldn't be worse. She had to know the ridicule that she would be facing in her society. She had to know what people would think. She had to know what her husband would think, what her family would think. And keep in mind that this is a society 
in which adultery was punishable with execution. So here's this pregnant, unwed, probably 14-ish year old woman that has no power and is incredibly vulnerable. And in spite of this, in spite of all the difficulties she knows she's going to have from this, the stress, the, the condemnation and judgment she's going to have from other people, in spite of this, this is how she responds to Gabriel in Luke chapter 1, verse 38. She says, I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. But this is extraordinary faithfulness in the face of a lot of uncertainty, a lot of upcoming stress, and a lot of difficulty that was about to come her way. So while she may seem ordinary in some ways, and she was, in other ways, she was not ordinary at all. Because in order for God to carry out this unorthodox plan, this weird plan he had for his son to enter the earth, he needed someone strong who could handle all this stress that was about to come. He needed someone who was incredibly humble, someone who could withstand people thinking very poorly about her. And this is something I I struggle with. I don't know about you, but I think a lot of us do struggle with working through how other people feel about us. So he needed someone with incredible humility. And he needed someone, first and foremost, who could trust him deeply. And Mary had a deep rootedness in God. She trusted him when things did not make sense because they did not make sense. The story, now we look back and we say, of course it makes sense. But when it first was introduced with her, she was filled with awe and wonder. But just realize how confusing this story must have been. And Mary wasn't in on all the plot points of what was about to happen. She wasn't privy to all the details of this story. She wasn't in the know, as we say. And there's two stories from the New Testament that, obviously, with Mary, (laughs) uh, but that tell us, give us some insight in how she wasn't really in the know. There was some confusion there. Um, For her, the first one is in uh, Luke 2 when Jesus is about 12. They were in Jerusalem for a religious holiday, and Mary and Joseph and their family they they uh, join a caravan headed back to their town of Nazareth. And on the way, they realize that Jesus isn't with them. They go back to Jerusalem. They spend three days looking for him, and they find him in the temple courts. And they find him with religious leaders of the day who are amazed at Jesus because he's listening and asking these amazing questions. And they, um, they reprimand Jesus for not being with them and not telling them and, and being a 12-year-old and staying in Jerusalem while they left. Um, and Jesus says this to them. He says, why were you searching for me? He asked. Didn't you know I had to be in my father's house? But they did not understand what he was saying to them. Again, there was, there was some confusion here of what the story, how the story was really going to play out and who Jesus really was. And then in Mark 3, Mark 3 is is an amazing story of Jesus being in Capernaum, being in a house, and he's teaching, and he's healing, and he's proclaiming. And this is kind of a dangerous moment for Jesus because he's becoming a threat to the Jewish leaders at this time. And he's, for the first time, he's becoming a threat also to the Roman authorities. And here it says that his family comes to seize him because they believe he's crazy, that he may be crazy. Also, the religious leaders are calling him evil in this story. And here we have Mary showing up with her family. And it says that she calls Jesus out. They call Jesus out. 
And the implication there is that she's trying maybe perhaps to save him, to rescue him, to take him back to Nazareth um, to make sure that he's okay. Or perhaps they also believed that he had lost his mind. And this is only to illuminate that, that Mary wasn't always in the know. There was so much uncertainty about what was going to happen in Jesus' life, even for her. And yet she had to trust God through that. And we can't gloss over that. God was calling her to an action with an unclear conclusion. In essence, God was calling Mary to follow him into the unknown. God was calling Mary to follow him into the mist. And she's not the first person that God called into this unknown, right? The Bible, in fact, that's pretty much the Bible's about, right? God calling people to trust him into the mist, into the unknown. You have Moses who was called back to Egypt. And look how crazy that story got. Moses could have never imagined it it would go there. You have Elijah who's called to battle the prophets of Baal. Again, with an uncertain outcome. You have Esther who advocates to save her people to the king of Persia. Again, putting her life completely at risk, not knowing what would happen, but trusting God amazingly through it. And then you have the disciples who Jesus walks along the Sea of Galilee and in the book of Mark, it's almost hilarious how simple Jesus' call is to them. What does he say? He says, follow me. And it says they drop everything and follow him. Um, And they don't really know who Jesus is at that moment. They don't fully understand his story or what's going to happen to him. They don't know what's going to happen to them. And yet they drop everything to follow Jesus. Life with God is messier than we often want to admit it is. Because God's ways cannot be figured out. We like to think we can figure them out. Or we like to attempt to figure them out. But often we can't. Um, Ecclesiastes 11.3.5 says, If clouds are full of water, they pour rain on earth. Whether a tree falls to the south or to the north, in the place where it falls, there it will lie. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. In other words, when a tree falls, we don't know where it's going to land. And when rain clouds come up, we don't know when and where they're going to pour out rain. And these are God's ways to us. They're beyond us. They're beyond us figuring them out. And if we're being honest, we don't like this. We don't like the mess. In fact, we try to, I think, avoid it at all costs. We are allergic, really, to uncertainty. Why? Because we want comfort and control. And this reminds me of Alan Hirsch, who's a theologian and an author. And he says that he believes that the, the uh, idols of Western Christian society are comfort, control, safety, and security. We desire those things. We seek them out. We want to be in the know. We want to have things figured out because why? Because it feels safe for us when we have things figured out. We feel empowered. And this goes all the way back to the garden. Our ego is reinforced. Who we are, our identity of who we are is reinforced when we think we know what's going to happen when we are in the know. We're desperate to be in control. And this reminds me of, of something that happened to me um, when I was in the Peace Corps. Um, I've spoken about this before from up here, but... Um, years ago, I lived on an island in the Caribbean called Dominica, extremely unique island, uh, even within the context of the Caribbean, because they're, they don't really have any sandy beaches. 
Um, it's really just a bunch of active volcanoes <laughs> covered in rainforest. And it's really rugged. It's really hard to get around on. I mean, I lived in a small village called Cochrane, which is up in the mountains, and about, you know, 200 people. And um, one of the things that just I enjoyed so much while I was there, this is an, the Peace Corps was an amazing experience for me, was I got to hike all the time into this rainforest. It was ridiculous, really. Um, which was funny because the villagers always found it weird that I would go hiking. They were a very pragmatic society, so they, they didn't hike, you know. It was like, if you're going to go walk somewhere, you're going to walk somewhere to do something. So anytime I would, you know, be walking out of the village, like, where are you going? I'm going hiking. Hiking? Why are you going hiking, you know? Um, and there was, a, there was a 150-foot waterfall above my village, which I'd go to all the time, and they thought it was so weird that I would go there by myself, um, which I find weird that they find weird, but that's the cultural thing, right? Um, there was also a river below my village. Another thing about Dominica that's unique, well, not unique within the Caribbean, is that they're very social. There wasn't a day that went by that I, my house wasn't crammed full of people from the village, right? I did not have space. And um, I'm, believe it or not, I've got some introverted uh, aspects to me. Um, and I just need space. I need time by myself. And so... There was one Saturday where I said, I'm just going to go down to the river. I'm going to hike down there. I'm just going to spend time by myself. And again, I'm walking out of the village. Where, Travis, where are you going? Oh, I'm going down to hike. Hike, that's weird. And um, I went in the afternoon. I went down. I swam. Imagine the most pristine river, like rainforest river you can think of. Um, and I took a nap. I wasn't expecting to take a nap. And when I woke up, it was dark. Well, I wasn't quite dark. It was, you know, um, I was going to say musk. <laughs> the dusk. It was musky. Okay. And I realized that I, I had slept too late and I was, and it started to worry me because I had to get back. And the problem is the last 10 minutes, it was about a half hour hike down there. The last 10 minutes to get down to the river, there wasn't a trail. It was just kind of, you had to know how to get down there. And so I started, I packed up my things. I had a backpack. I did not have a flashlight, by the way. And I started to walk back up. And the first time I went back up, I could not find the trail. I said, okay, okay, calm. This is my inner self. I'm not saying this out loud. Calm down, Travis. You know, uh, it'll be okay. So I go back down to the river, and then I restart, go back up. Again, I can't find my way. <laughs> I go back down to the river again, and now I'm going, oh, no. <laughs> I, I, I remember thinking at the time I have two choices. I can lay down <laughs> and fall asleep and wake up in the morning and start afresh when I know I've got plenty of sunlight, which I didn't like this idea at all, by the way, um, or number two, I could just pick a direction and start walking because I figured I was on an island. So worst comes to worst, I'm going to be in water or swimming, you know, at the end of that. So I, I decided on number two um, and I just picked a direction and I started walking. Um, problem is, once I got into the rainforest, I got lost. And really for the first time in my life, and I know you guys are probably thinking this is weird. I wasn't truly, truly lost because I was on an island. I get that. But just go with me on this, okay? So I became lost for the first time in my life where I didn't know what direction my village was. I didn't know what direction what was. And I, and I don't know if you've ever been in that situation. It is not fun. It's very stressful. It can induce panic if you're, if you're not careful. Another thing I was worried about was the wildlife in Dominica. They didn't have a lot of it, but what they had was pretty freaky. Um, they, first of all, they've got snakes. And we got pictures here, maybe perhaps. Yes, okay, so that's actually, I know it's a little blurry, but that's actually on Dominica, and that's a snake there. These big snakes, and I heard that they came out a bunch at night, which wasn't fun. And then they had these things called agoutis, 
And there's an agouti. Okay, this is a giant rat, okay? I'm serious. Imagine a pack of giant rats chasing you at night. Okay, this is what I was thinking of. This, these remind me of the R-O-U-S's from the Princess Bride, the rodents of unusual size. Yes! Look at that thing. The, yeah. And lastly, the thing that all Dominicans were terrified of were the centipedes, uh, these giant centipedes. And they, were, they could get this big. I'm not joking. And, and if they touched you, you would be in immense pain and you would swell just by them touching you with their, their little legs. Oh, so gross. Um, so as I'm going through the rainforest, this is what I'm imagining. This is what's coming out at night in Dominica. And I'm going, oh, no. I went, at one point, I went through a, a, a thicket of thorns, um, bushes with thorns on them that were above my head. I tried to climb a tree at one point to figure out where I was. Quickly getting down, though, because I remembered that that's where the snakes like to be and didn't want to be up there. <laughs> I actually was um, bit by a bunch of fire ants, which I didn't realize at the time because I, had, I think of my adrenaline was pumping. But later that, later that night, when I, after I took a shower, I was on fire and completely red head to toe from the fire ants. Um, I, I started to panic a bit. I fell into a, a dry riverbed. Thankfully, my ba- I fell onto my back. Thankfully, my backpack broke my fall because I landed on just a bunch of rocks. But I was sweaty. <laughs> I, was a, I was a mess. I was, uh, I was not doing good. Um, finally, I got to the bottom of a hill, and at the top of the hill, I saw some headlights. I scrambled up to the top of, of the um, hill, and I got on the road, and I took a giant sigh of relief. Because I knew when I was on that road, when I was on that path, that I could find my way into my village. Everything was, was clear to me at that point. And this is so much like my experience, and I don't know about yours, in life. Because I desire that road in my life. I want to know where I'm going. I want to know how to get back to my village very easily. But so much in my life I feel like Jesus has come out of the rainforest up to me on the road and said, Travis, I know you want to go on that path that clear path right there, but follow me, into the, follow me into the forest. I know that may sound weird, but I've got a better way for you. I've got a good way for you if you would just follow me. And you're not going to be alone. I'm going to be your guide. And it's going to be hard, and it's going to be messy, and it's going to be really scary at times going through there, but trust me. Follow me. And so often in my life, I think I've said to Jesus, That's great, Jesus. I love that. I love who you are, but just stay there. I'm going to stay on this path that I know. And that's what we do in life, right? Because we desire to be in the know. We desire certainty so much. But what's so good about God, what's such good news about him and his kingdom, is that Jesus keeps popping back out of that forest for me and going, Travis, follow me. Follow me into the the forest, into the mist. This is why Mary's story is so, um, if I can truly ponder it, if I can take a step back and really ponder what's happening here, this is why it's so awe-inspiring for me. Mary follows God so faithfully, so gracefully, in light of confusion and weirdness and the unknown. This story about Mary teaches us that just by who she is and how she follows God, That true faith is not just belief. True faith is not just a mental exercise. It's not just knowledge of God's story. 
and of him. But that true faith is an action born from trust in the goodness and faithfulness of our Heavenly Father. I'm going to read a quote here from um, Brendan Manning. And, and if you haven't read this book, I recommend go out and get it. It's called Ruthless Trust. And he talks about this. He says, this book started writing itself with a remark from my spiritual director. Brendan, you don't need any more insights into the faith he observed. You've got enough insights to last you 300 years. The most urgent need in your life is to trust what you have received. On a re- and then now this is a conversation he had with a, a student at his seminary named Gus. On a recent visit, I asked him, Gus, could you define the Christian life in a single sentence? He didn't even blink before responding. Brennan, he said, I can define it in a single word. Trust. It has been more than four decades since I was ambushed by Jesus in a little chapel in the Allegheny Mountains of western Pennsylvania. After thousands of hours of prayer and meditation over the intervening years, I can state unequivocally that childlike surrender and trust is the defining spirit of authentic discipleship. And that's why this story of Mary is such an amazing challenge for, for us right now in this time and age right here at Oak Hills Church. As we follow God. Because she did it in spite of the uncertainty. She did it in confusion. She did it in spite of the craziness of what was about to happen. About the story that was about to unfold in front of her. And in spite of how weird and wonderful the story was about to get. This is an amazing challenge for us into the messiness of, messiness of our lives. Because they are messy if we're willing to admit it. And I don't think when we're by ourselves, it's hard to admit it. Our lives are full of pain. Our lives are full of weird, weird things that happen. <laughs> full of uncertainty. And yet, we're called to trust him through it all. Why? For the same reason that Mary trusted him. Because he is good and he is worthy of our trust. Let's pray. Father, um, we ask for, uh, in this Advent season, Lord, for um, fresh eyes to your story. For the ability, Lord, to take a story that we have heard many, many times, Lord, that your spirit can infuse us, our minds and our hearts and our spirits, with the wonder of this story. With the wonder of what you did through Mary, Lord. And Lord, let us learn from her what it means in the absolute mess of our lives when things are confusing in a deep part of our souls, Lord, to rest and trust in who you are because you are good. Amen.